All right, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3. We're going to talk about, um, in case you didn't know, I didn't really announce this, but I'm, I'm, I'm in Genesis. I'm going to be in Genesis for a while. We may actually work through the whole book of Genesis. Now, we're not going to work through it verse by verse per se. My, my purpose in being in Genesis is that we can take the Old Testament Scriptures, we can go to the very beginnings of the Bible, of the Scripture, and we can see where God has revealed Christ to us. He has written the Gospel throughout the Scripture. He has written and drawn a picture of His Son for us in all things in the Scripture. So, <clears throat> as, as the Lord leads, as you know, we may, like I say, work through the whole book, but... Uh, this is where we are right now. And today I want to talk about the plan of God. God's plans never fail. We fail, right? How many of you have ever failed? You, do I have any failures here? Not very many. But I have. I fail all the time. Many of my plans, if not most of them, seem like <laughs> they fail or at least run into trouble, right? Um, but God's plans never fail. And if you fail, or your plan fails, that does not mean God has failed. Amen? So let's begin, and, and let's look at Genesis. Let's just, uh, I'm going to read the chapter to you. Uh, it's only 24 verses. You guys can handle that, right? I know in our culture today, we're not used to reading large chunks of Scripture. We like to just take one or two little bitty Scriptures, take them out of context, and then build a theology around it. But that's really not a good thing to do, and it's very dangerous. So let's read uh, Genesis chapter 3, which records for us the, the fall of mankind, okay? So before I begin, do you all agree that God has a plan? Do you believe God has a plan, or do you think God just kind of says, well, let's just, let's just throw something out here and see what happens? Or do you think God has a plan in all that he does? Well, the correct answer is God has a plan in all that he does, and that truth is revealed to us throughout Scripture. So when God created the heavens and the earth, He had a plan, which means He had a plan before He created the heavens and the earth. That's why they were created. And when God creates man, He has a plan. So now we come to Genesis chapter 3. Now let's begin reading in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. I have highlighted in my Bible those words, which the Lord God had made. God made the serpent. Don't ever forget that. The devil is not an omniscient being. He's not like God. He has not always existed. He is a created being, and God created him. Now the serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, the serpent did, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the, every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her. Notice where Adam was. He was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam, his wife, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? 
You think God doesn't know the answer to all these questions? Certainly he knows. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. There it is, guys. It's always the woman's fault. And the Lord God said to the... It's in the Bible. There it is right there. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, as she passes the buck right along, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Those are all true. The woman did give Adam the fruit, and the serpent did deceive the woman, and she ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, now here comes the curse. And the buck passing is going in reverse order here, notice. So the buck is passed from from Adam to Eve to the serpent. Now God's going to pronounce judgment in reverse order here. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You should highlight, underline, your seed and her seed. God distinguishes between two different seeds that exist in the earth here. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Adam wasn't ruling over her in the garden, was he? He stood there passively, allowing her to take the fruit. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Who does God lay the ultimate blame? He comes right here to Adam and he says, Hey, dude, you were created first. I gave the command to you first. You were the one basically, who had the authority here, and you didn't do anything. Therefore, cursed is the ground for your sake. You should highlight that, cursed is the ground. Notice that it wasn't just Adam and Eve and the serpent that suffered as a result of the fall, but the earth now suffers because of the fall. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. There's your first animal sacrifice, the shedding of blood because of, because of sin. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man who has become like one of us, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil, now lest... He put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, hold your place there. Let's go to Romans, the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read some verses from Romans chapter 5, and then we're going to talk about this. Romans chapter 5. The whole chapter, really. You should read the whole chapter, but I'm not going to take the time to read the whole chapter today, though it's relevant to what we're talking about. Let's begin in verse 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to read down to verse 17. Romans 5, 
verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. Who was that man? It was the man Adam. And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. How did all men sin? Because Adam sinned. Therefore, we all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Until the law, sin was in the world. He's talking about the law of Moses there, the Ten Commandments. But there was a law. Sin was in the world. What was the first law that was given to man? Don't eat from that tree in the midst of the garden. That was a law God gave to man. Had God never said, don't eat of the tree, then he could have eaten of the tree and he wouldn't have sinned. But because God said, God gave a law, don't eat of that tree, and Adam broke that law, sin entered the world in that sense. Now look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Let me stop right there. How many of you were in the garden and ate the, tree with, ate the fruit with Adam and Eve? None of us, right? So some, I've heard people say, actually people have said this to me, why, why does God punish me? I wasn't in the garden. I didn't eat the, tr- I didn't eat the fruit. God is unjust to punish me because I wasn't there. Well, in reality, you were there. You were there in Adam. Because you and I and all humanity descended from Adam. In a sense, we were all there. This is what the Bible teaches us. We didn't all sin according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, but we all sinned. Who is Adam? The end of verse 14. Adam is a type of him who was to come. Who is him who was to come? That is Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of God and the gift by the grace of of the one man. Let me read that again because I didn't read that very well. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. One offense led us all to death, to sin. So the free gift is not like the one offense. And the gift, look at that, verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So one offense brought death to many. But because of many offenses, now the free gift has come in the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I read that in Romans 5 is because I wanted you to see that Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Romans, he refers us back to this story of the fall. And he says, Adam, the first man created, is a type of Christ. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Jesus is called the last Adam, and he's called the second man. So, God had a plan in the beginning. This is what I want us to see and to understand. So the fall and the cross are both God's plan. How did, how did the one man bring justification and righteousness? He brought it through the cross. He brought it through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we see before there ever was a gospel written, there was a gospel written. 
So we think the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the reality is the gospel was written beginning in Genesis all the way to the end of what we now call our Bible, which is the book of Revelation. The first 39 books of your Bible is what we call the Old Testament. The gospel was not first written when the 27 books of the New Testament began. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not when the gospel began. The gospel began way back with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that point, God wrote his gospel throughout the scripture. It's there as plain as day. It's there as plain as the noontime sun. When you walk out of this building and look up into the blinding sun, I'm telling you what, the gospel written in the scripture is as plain, as bright, and as shining as the noonday sun, even brighter. We just don't always have eyes to see it. So I want you to know that the fall and the cross were both God's plan. So we hear a lot of talk about choice these days. In the beginning, our father Adam made a choice to reject God's truth for a lie. And that not only cost him, but it cost all of humanity. God says to Adam, he says, the earth, the ground is cursed because of you. Paul tells us in in Romans chapter 8 that the earth is waiting. We're going to look at the scripture a little bit later. So not only did it cost him, but it cost all humanity. That's why... Though we did not all eat of the fruit of the tree, we did, in a sense, because we are all descendants of Adam, and we have all sinned. And we sin because we are born in sin. We don't have to learn how to sin. That's who we are in our birth. That's what our father Adam did for us when he fell. But I want you to see this, that God's God's grace saves us from our choice. So as a result of Adam's choice, even though it wasn't our own, we are born with a sin nature that is not only rejected by God, but we willfully and naturally reject God. Without the new birth, without being born again, we cannot choose God and we cannot love God. We are deceived to believe that we have the power to choose God as we desire in our time, at our convenience. That is a deception. That's why the Bible says, today is the day, now is the time of salvation. James says, don't say, next year, we're going to go do this and go to this town and buy and sell. He says, because you don't know if next year is going to be here. You don't even know if tomorrow is going to be here. Say instead, if the Lord wills. So without the new birth, we can't choose God. We can't love God. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. John writes, we love God because he first loved us. We're deceived if we believe that we can, at our convenience, in our time, just choose God anytime we want to. We are in sin, the Bible says. We are darkness. We are counted as dead men. Dead men can't do much. So God works how? God works in his time. He works in his way according to his good pleasure. God knows, listen, God knows man's sinfulness all too well. God knows our sinfulness better than we know our sinfulness. And God loves too much to leave man's salvation in man's sinful hands. Because if God had done that, there would be no salvation. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? God loves us too much to leave our own salvation in our own hands. Because of who we are, In our first father, Adam, because of who we are in our natural births, we're not capable of salvation. It is the grace of God, it is the love of God that took that out of man's hands so that there will be salvation. This 
is God's plan. It was his eternal purpose. So why do we, why do we deceive ourselves into thinking that we have God on standby and he's just waiting for us and we can just do what we want, when we want, how we want, and God is just going to be there at our beck and call? Well, in a feeble attempt to justify man's sin in the face of an all-powerful God, because how in the world did God let this happen? Have you ever had anyone ask this question, or have you ever asked this question? If God is, if God is really good, and God is really all-powerful, then how in the heck did he let Adam mess up so bad? What, what happened there? We say, well, God just withdrew himself and let Adam do what he wanted to do. And in a sense, that's true. He did. He let Adam make his choice. But in this attempt to justify man's fall in the face of an all-powerful God, some have come to believe that through... Not through the scripture, I don't believe, but through human reasoning, because here's what we try to do. We try to fit God into our own understanding, right? I mean, God's like us. He thinks like us. He reasons like us. No, he doesn't. We, in very, very small ways, think like God and reason like God, but God in no way (laughs) thinks like us and reasons like us. As a matter of fact, Isaiah says, The Lord through Isaiah says, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. But in an attempt to justify this, we somehow believe that man confounded God's plan in the beginning. So it kind of goes like this, since plan A, you know what plan A, plan A was for A for Adam, right? We have plan A, here's Adam, God's plan A, but... Adam messed up, that didn't work out, so God had to come up with an alternate plan B or a plan C for Christ, right? No, no, that's not right. That's a lie, listen church, that's a lie that demeans God. It detracts from who God truly is. It says that God, if he did have a plan, didn't have a very good plan because his plan failed and he had to come up with another one. Well, now, what kind of God is that, right? I mean, is that, is that the all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient God? If he can have a plan that gets messed up, and then he's got to come up with alternate plans? And then did it happen again when he flooded the earth in Noah's day? How many plans has God come up with now? Mm-mm. See, that's not what the Bible teaches us. This is not what the Bible communicates about God. God doesn't make a plan, the plan fails, and God makes an alternate plan. No. God has one eternal plan. Whether we understand it or not really doesn't matter. God didn't give us the plan so that we could understand everything about it. God gave us the plan so that we would know that he is God, that he is the sovereign, and that he is the one that is in control. So all that has happened from the beginning happens because God ordained it to be so. Adam fell because God ordained Adam's fall. We can really say it no other way. You say, well, God allowed it. He didn't ordain it. Well, what's the difference? Now, we can't say God didn't cause Adam to fall. God didn't make Adam fall, but God certainly ordained that Adam would fall. Now, we're not better than Adam, Think about this. Here's Adam created by God, living in communion with God in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says it was good. Here's Adam in direct relationship with God. I mean, God's walking around in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam's hiding in the bushes. Tells me that that God and Adam had fellowshiped and communed before the fall in the garden. So here's Adam there with, with God, he walked in direct relationship with God, but yet, what did Adam do? He chose to sin. And we should never think that we would make a better choice then or now. Well, I'll tell you what, had I been in the garden, I guarantee you I would not have done that. No. 
If man before the fall chose sin, there is no man today who could or would choose any better. For all have fallen short, there is none good, not, no, not one. All have turned aside, there is none who seek after God. So God just created a bunch of failures in the beginning. Is that, is that what we're to take from this? No. No, we're not. What we're to take from this is that God had a plan before the beginning. Listen, there was ever only one man who would walk in sinless perfection before God the Father. That was never meant to be the first Adam. That was eternally purposed to be the man Jesus Christ. So what we need to understand at the very beginning, when God created man and put him in the garden, God never put man in the garden with an idea in his mind that, well, let's see how this guy does. I think, I think maybe he's got a good chance to walk sinless before me. And if it doesn't work out, Jesus, son, are you ready to go and rescue them if, 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 if it doesn't work out? Because I'm not sure how it's going to work out. No. God knew exactly how it would work out. So why did God create Adam and put Adam in the garden? Not so that Adam could walk without sin, because God knew that Adam would never walk without sin. God put Adam in that garden because Adam was a picture of someone else. Adam was a foretelling, a foreshadowing. He was a road sign pointing to the one man who would come one day. Well, why didn't God? Why didn't God just put Jesus in the garden then, in the beginning? Let's, I don't have the scripture up there, but it's okay. It's just one I thought about right now. It's Galatians. Go to the book of Galatians. And I think it's going to be somewhere around chapter 4. Verse 4, Galatians 4, 4. So here's the question. Why didn't God just put Jesus, if Jesus was the one man, there's only one man who ever walked in sinless perfection before God the Father. And what I'm telling you is God's plan was always for it to be Jesus. It was never meant to be Adam or you or me or anybody else. No Pope, not Mary, no one. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's only one who ever walked sinless. Only one man. That is the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So if that was God's eternal plan before God said, let there be light, then why didn't God just send Jesus into the garden to walk in sinless perfection and then, you know, the rest is history. Why go through all of this fall and curse and pain and suffering? I mean, Marley's going to have a painful childbirth because of what Adam and Eve did. All you ladies who ever birthed a child, never done it myself, but I understand it's pretty painful. And, and it's all because, just think, if God would have just sent Jesus to the garden in the beginning, then you wouldn't have to experience all of that. So why didn't God just send Jesus? Well, here's the answer. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why didn't God put Jesus in the garden first instead of Adam? Because it wasn't time. Why, what do you mean it wasn't time? This, this also tells us that God obviously had a plan. So when God put Adam in the garden... God knew that Adam would fail, and God knew that there was coming a day when he would send his son, though that day was many, many, many centuries in the future. What does that tell us? That tells us that God's plan was to put Adam there, to let Adam fall, because God's plan was to always send his son, and it would be that man, the son of God, who would walk in sinless perfection. It was never meant to be Adam, and it was never meant to be us. We are incapable. We cannot walk free of sin. We are born in sin. 
We're born in need of a Savior, and God wants us to see it. And so God, in his grace, listen to me, church, God, in his grace, allowed the fall so that we would feel our need for a Savior. The first Adam fell while embracing the lie and rejecting the truth. His fall was rooted in complete self-centered sin. Jesus, the last Adam, and that's what Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last Adam. Jesus, the last Adam, was crucified while rejecting the lie and personifying the truth. Do you see the contrast here? His death was rooted in complete self-sacrificing righteousness. Adam absolutely deserved to die. Jesus did not deserve anything. He didn't deserve any punishment, certainly not death, because he was sinless. The first Adam the first Adam's fall in the garden and the last Adam's death on the cross are both God's plan. What appeared to be total failure is in reality, listen, swelling victory snatch from the unsuspecting jaws of defeat. Humanity was pregnant with the promised seed and it would swell to full term when God sent his son into the world to birth a new creation. Look at Genesis 3.15. God says, here's the prophecy of the coming Savior and Redeemer. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Four thousand years later, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Who was this son? It was this promised seed. When God spoke those words to the serpent and said, the seed is coming who will crush your head. It was 4,000 years before that seed came. But humanity was pregnant with that seed. How did that seed come? This is why when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Luke's Gospel, you look at those Gospels and you have the genealogies of Jesus. And one of those genealogies traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. Humanity was pregnant with the promised seed. And in the fullness of time, when is Benjamin, when is that baby going to come out? In the fullness of time, that baby's going to come out. When did God conceive the plan to send forth the seed that would crush the head of the serpent? Before he said, let there be light. He had that plan in mind. When he put man in the garden and he allowed man to fall, God already knew what was coming. Adam was just the vehicle through which the seed would come forth. Are you hearing me? So here's how we should understand the fall in the garden. Though it resulted in a curse, it actually was a good plan. It actually was the grace of God and the goodness of God because through that fall is how God intended to bring his son into the world through the fallenness of humanity. So that for 4,000 years and now for 6,000 years, humanity has felt the need of the Savior. We just don't know it's a Savior we need. Many people feel the need, but they think what they need is money, what they need is fame. What they need is love. What they need is sex. What they need is, you can fill in the blank. If I could just have that, I'd be good. No, you wouldn't. You, not only would you not be good, I don't mean that in a moralistic sense. I'd be fulfilled. I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. Because what you really need, and you don't know it, is you need God. And if you, we sing a song, 
written by Charles Wesley. In the song, it asks, how did I come to to have an interest in the Savior's blood? If God graces you, you will come to have an interest in the Savior's blood. And when you find an interest in the Savior's blood, you will understand that what you need is not money or riches or a better job or a bigger house or more fame and more fortune. What you need is Jesus. And until you have Jesus, you have nothing. So God's eternal plan was always to follow man, to allow man to fall, and always to send his son into the world. It was necessary for Adam to die in order that Christ, the promised seed, would come forth. It was necessary that God, that Christ die and through the cross bruise the head of the serpent and usher in a new creation through his resurrection. In this new creation in Christ, there is now ultimate and complete victory over all of God's enemies. The fall and the cross were always God's eternal plan and always for our good and always for his glory. The fall at Eden brought Adam to death. The cross at Calvary brings Adam to death. We're called to die. Christ came and died so that we could die with him. It is through his death that we have life. The fall of Adam looked at first like victory for the enemy. The cross of Christ looked at first like victory for the enemy. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 20. God's plan never fails, even when ours does. Romans 8, 20. says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who subjected the creation to the curse? God did. And why did he subject it? It says here, for hope. He subjected it in hope. He did not subject the creation without hope. This is why the creation yearns, groans, Paul writes, for the revealing, for the manifestation of the sons of God. Because when the sons of God are ultimately manifested, what does that mean? That means one day when this death, when this corruption puts on incorruption, when these mortal bodies become glorified, immortal bodies, and the last enemy is put underfoot, that last enemy is death. When that happens, there will be the fullness of the revealing or the manifestations of the sons of God, and creation will no longer be under to the curse, under the curse it was subjected to by God, even though God subjected the creation to the curse in hope. He did it in hope. I want you to hear that. Don't pass over those little bits of Scripture. Paul is writing something huge here. Yes, God subjected the creation to the curse and futility, but he did it in hope. There was always hope. There wasn't just hope after God scrambled to come up with another plan. No, that's not God. That's man. That's man trying to fit God into his way of thinking. God never scrambled for anything. God never got nervous about anything. God never, never wrung his hands trying to figure out, now what am I going to do? God always knew what he was going to do. God always knew what man was going to do. God always knew when he would send the Son to redeem man. God knew when he subjected the creation to the curse, he did it in hope. And what I'm saying to you, church, is you need to find that hope. You need to see that hope. Don't look at the curse. Don't look at the results of the curse that's working in your life, whether you're struggling with sickness in your body or whether you're struggling with finances or whether you're struggling with relationships, with conflict, with whatever it is that you might be struggling with. Those things are product of the curse. They're products of the fall. Understand that even in the deepest, darkest midst and parts of the fall, through the deepest, darkest valley that we walk through, God has always and will always provide hope for us. We have never been without hope because we have never been without God.
We have never been outside of the plan of God. His plan never fails, even though we do. The first Adam's death resulted in the foretelling and coming of the promised seed of our redemption. The death of the last Adam, Christ, resulted in the multiplication of that promised seed. Contrasting the beginning of creation with the end of an age. And listen, I'm telling you what, Jesus brought about the end of an age through his death, burial, and resurrection. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That's not just hyperbolic language. That's not just... uh, some way of, let's find a really good word. Let's see, how can, we des- how can we describe this? No, I'm telling you what, there, in every sense of the word, God brought forth a new creation through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The end of something came and the beginning of something began. And so we see in the fall, in the cross, the contrast between the beginning of creation and the end of an age And we see that God allowed the first Adam to fall in death in the beginning because he planned it ultimately for his glory and our good. And God allowed his only begotten son, the last Adam, to fall in death in the end because he planned it ultimately for his glory and for our good. So the fall foreshadows the cross. God had a plan In the very beginning, through the fall of man, through the death of his son, God brings victory out of defeat. Can you see that, church? Can you see how it looked that God's plan was defeated in the garden? That God's plan was defeated at Calvary? Do you see the devil was in both places working? Listen, I'll tell you where Jesus ultimately crucified himself. It was in the garden of Gethsemane. It was in that garden, it was in a garden that Jesus said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. It was right there when he shed great drops of blood in that garden that the the destiny of the enemy, I mean, it was sealed. He was doomed when God spoke in Genesis 3.15, but I'm telling you what, God executed the judgment in the cross upon His Son. God brings victory out of defeat. And so as it is in creation and redemption, it is in our life. God can take that thing that looks like total and complete failure, total and complete disaster, and turn it into His glory and into your good and into the good of others. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Jeremiah spoke those words in a prayer to God concerning lands and houses and vineyards. They're getting ready to be carried away captive. God tells Jeremiah, go down and purchase some land. <laughs> but God, the Babylonians are here. They're, they've like wasted everything. They've like slashed and burned. Everything's gone. Yeah, go down and buy that land. Get the deed to that land. Put it in a jar and put it somewhere safe. Because, yes, you are being carried away captive, but you're going to come back to the land. And when you come back to the land, you're going to inhabit those houses, those vineyards, and those those things. And Jeremiah, in his human mind, says, how can this be possible? Will there even be anything left when we come back, if we come back from captivity? What does Jeremiah say in his prayer? Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. When you face impossible situations... What do you do? Do you pray like Jeremiah? Do you remind yourself 
Jeremiah wasn't reminding God of who God was. Jeremiah was reminding himself of who God was. Jeremiah was hearing what God was saying and in his humanness going, this is impossible. I don't know how this is going to work. And he reminds himself, he says, ah, Lord God, you made the heavens by your outstretched. Listen, from nothing God made everything. Surely God can save some vineyards and some lands and some houses when he brings us back from captivity. The God who made everything out of nothing surely knows each of our situations and what we face. Do we believe that he is the God who created the heavens? Do we believe that he is the God of which the scripture declares there is nothing too hard for him? It seems that God loves to plan for what seems like sure disaster, sure failure, only to snatch victory from the jaws of unsuspecting defeat. Now here's the way we like to think about it. Here's how our human minds work. If we would have been running the show in the beginning, we would have come right at the last minute, and we would have snatched that apple out of Eve's hand and said, oh, don't do that. Oh, man, do you know how close we just came to disaster? But praise God, he is so good, he didn't let that happen. Or Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and just at the last minute before he dies, we were able to take him off the cross and save his life and say, oh, God is so good. He, he, he just he didn't let you come to death. Now listen, sometimes the plan of God, the goodness of God, the victory of God looks like, tastes like, feels like utter and complete defeat and failure. When the loved one dies that you prayed would live, it, it doesn't seem like victory. It doesn't seem like the good plan of God. But this is where we have to become a people of God who understand that God doesn't work based on our feelings and our emotions. And sometimes the good of God and the victory of God and the best plan of God involves things that look like sure failure, disaster, and defeat. Yet who is this God? The God who had a plan before Adam fell in the garden. The God who had a plan before Christ was crucified on the cross. Who is this God? He is the creator, the God of heaven and earth, who by his outstretched arm created everything. Who had a plan, who has a plan. It is eternal in the heavens. And when his plan does not go in the same way that our plan goes, when, when his plan that is successful feels like our failure, our defeat, or even our death, can we trust him? Can we trust him? I'm telling you, church, you can trust him. He has proven time and time again from Eden to Gethsemane, from the fall to the cross, from the old creation to the new creation. There is nothing too hard for him. Cry out to him, call upon him, seek him. His plans never fail, even when ours do. Amen? Let's all stand. We are never without hope. In Christ, we are never without victory. Can you imagine how victorious the devil must have felt when he got Adam and Eve to eat the fruit? Can you imagine how victorious he must have felt as he watched Christ expire on that cross, bloodied and beaten to a formless mass of flesh. Can you imagine how jubilant and how victorious he must have felt witnessing those things? But yet in the midst of what seemed like absolute defeat, 
and disaster, God brought our greatest victory. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help each one of us. Lord, as we navigate life and we walk through the valley of shadow, Lord, whether we're walking, Lord, in deep darkness or whether we're, Lord, frolicking on the mountaintop, God, we are always in desperate need of you. Lord, anyone that's lived any length of time knows that in a moment our situations can change. But God, help us to have a steadfast heart and a steadfast mind that has the assurance that even though our situations may change outwardly, the hope and the victory that you have given to us inwardly in Christ, eternally in Christ, never wavers. There are no ups and downs in the victory, the eternal victory that we have in Christ. God, help us to be a people that walk with that assurance. Whether we walk in the valley of shadow or whether we walk in great light, help us to walk humbly, realizing, God, that apart from your grace, we have nothing. We have no victory. And even in seeming defeat, Lord, your grace is working always for your glory and our good. So we have this hope, God. We have it in Christ. And so we can say with the Apostle Paul that our tribulations are producing something in us, something glorious. That our light afflictions that are but for a moment are working in us something glorious, a more eternal weight of glory. Lord, that is true because of your grace. So we call upon you. We trust in your grace today. I pray, God, for all those here who feel the desperate need of a Savior, the desperate need of your grace, who feel it in their bones, who feel it in their being, in their hearts, in their minds. I pray, God, that you would, by your Spirit, pour out an abundance of your grace and your peace that they would indeed call upon your name because you have promised, Lord, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Give us a heart of faith, God, to call upon that name that we would be saved and realize the eternal hope that you have given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.